Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. On this episode, I'm really excited to have Tom Sapperly. Uh, Tom's a very impressive guy. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about his time in the Army Special Mission Unit, uh, as well as the uh, foundation and charity that they're doing to help folks on the other side of service. Um, Tom, where, uh, where should we start today? You get, you get asked a lot of questions. I'm, yeah. I'm going to throw it wide open to you as, as a fellow podcaster. Where do you want to start? You know, I'd like to start with the fact that, you know, we can run down the story of everybody's like, tell us about your life. And I, oh, I started, I grew up here, and then I joined the Army and blah, blah, blah. And then I, you know, struggled and it sucked. And then I almost killed myself. And then here I am. I'd like to start with the here I am because everyone goes through those struggles. Um, everyone has a different story of what that struggle is. And everyone has that comparison. And I, and I always throw out comparison as a thief of healing because I get the phone call. Hey, my combat time wasn't like yours. Or if we'd help in cops, cops calling like, look, I wasn't in combat. And I have to explain to them that the, the comparison that they're having is what we all do, right? Mine isn't as bad as yours, so I won't get help. Or, you know, the placement of the cops. I don't live in my combat. You know, I, I didn't go to combat. I go, well, I don't live in my combat. So it's the awareness of the fact that we all have a struggle. I don't know what it is or, or, or it's different for everybody on the planet. but how we feel right now is what that struggle puts us in, right? That depression, that sadness, I'm not good enough, or the loss of something. And then uh, sadly, inevitably can lead to, you know, major depressions and death by suicide. So it's one of those, if I could cut straight to the mustard for everything, it would be like, you're worth it. Your struggle isn't any less than anyone else's, you know, and your life can get better. And that's where I'd like to start. The fact that your life can always get better, but you play the role in it. Right. You're the, the main player in that in that acting in that scene that that I spent years blaming other people for my misery. And I can't fix and change other people. I can only fix and change myself. So that awareness of everybody goes through it and I gotta get to work on my own stuff, you know, that's important for me. I'm really interested in this topic. Uh so for anybody who doesn't know, Tom's book, um, All Secure is awesome. I just finished it last week and foundation by the same name. And what specifically is included in the mission of, of All Secure? Yeah, our foundation uh, started out just as a resource library, which we still are. So if you, you know, we help special operations families, any capacity, any service, and, and you served in any capacity in special operations will help you and your family. Of course, you know, I, I made the mistake on Fox News once. We never turn anyone away and we never have. And, you know, the phone rings off the hook, but the limiting factor is money and time and people. But you know, we, 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 we still hand out those resources, whether we do it or not. We've vetted other organizations. So if we don't do it, we'll still hold on to you until you're handed off firmly to another organization that will help you. Um, we do 365 uh, days a year coaching with licensed clinical social workers. We have four on staff now, and we run four to next year. We're running six couples retreats where we help 10 couples come in for a four-day weekend. It's very intensive of, here's what you guys need to do, and let's get back together. No, by the way, now go practice on date night. Come back the next morning, tell us how you did, and we'll start over with some more tools to use. So we're loading up tools in their basket, and then Jen and I travel the country um, to talk to active duty organizations about, you know, we'll either run a retreat for them or we're just talking to them about the struggle, what to consider, the fact that you can't go down the list of post-traumatic stress and what does it look like because all warriors kind of look the same way, you know, heavy drinking and isolation and all. Oh, yeah, that's what warriors do. So kind of looking what to look for um, when people are struggling and how to help them. When you think about the tools that have been the most helpful for you and, and the book is so great about, you know, 
kind of a, a big, exciting life, but also some of the struggles and the way some things are set up in the unit and the military in general that, that make it harder to get those tools sometimes. Um, when you think about for yourself, what you found the most helpful, um, what do you think those tools were? Empathy and compassion, which we, we all think we have. And I, and I had it growing up. I had empathy and compassion. I was a sensitive young man growing up. I was very uh, in tune to other people's needs, and I was always the one. I was one of those OCD people cleaning the house till it sparkled. And if you drop something, I'd go clean it. But I didn't care. It's what I did to feel good. And then going to help other people through their issues, it's just kind of what I did. And it's what Jen grew up you know, as. Everybody called her the counselor. So it was one of those kind of natural things that I had empathy and compassion. I lost that. Um, in my 20, 25 years in the military, 20, you know, in, in special operations. And I came out of it and I was, I was kind of like everyone is when they get out. They're like, ah, you know, if you have, your, if you have an issue, you created it yourself, you know? And I used to look back at people who were having troubles and I'm like, well, let's backtrack all the way to high school when you were on smoker's corner, not going to your classes. I mean, it's your fault. Get out of it. And I took that blame and threw it at everybody like do it yourself, you know? And then I, I led my life that way after losing empathy and compassion until I met my wife now, Jen, who, was, who told me, this is, you're, you're acting poorly. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And I would break it down to her. This is why I'm not acting poorly. And let me tell you why, you know, and I would run down life's lessons for her in a factual kind of way. Here are the facts. There's no emotions. And uh, she taught me once again that you can't leave your life emotionless and that everybody tells us it doesn't bother me. And that's a lie. That's just the cover up that we use. So empathy and compassion got me back to you know, feeling for other people, but I had to feel for myself first. You know, you have to love yourself to love others. And I didn't have any of that towards myself. So it all started to turn inward. And that was, that was when I started to get better was the reality that I needed to turn inward and do a self-assessment. And then I started to find empathy and compassion for myself a little bit from all the things I'd gone through and understanding that it does change you. It does change your behavior and uh, it does change your outlook on life. And you couldn't have convinced me that before I met Jen, who just was persistent and kind. And it, it, I was very sketchy when I met her, like, what, what do you want? You know, what do you want? You're being very nice to me. What is it you want? The only, the only time people are nice is when they want something. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm nice because I want to be nice to you. And I, so living with that, well, her living with me, sadly, you know, the way I was at the time for years, um, changed me and, and helped me see that. You know, I got to have empathy, compassion for myself, and then it turns to other people as well. And then I started helping more and more other people with my path and how I did it. And that's just kind of what it kind of uh, snowballed from there. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Um, you think about uh, being in the unit and like achieving mastery at so many different kinds of skills. Like, I feel like you guys are experts at learning, not just experts at pistol or things like this. Um, how do you think some of those practices have helped you as you've been learning this new sport? Very analytical, very, um, and I've used those skills that I had in the military now to help other people in the military who bang their hands on their heads saying, I've been trained for this. Why do I want to kill myself? Why am I so horrible at home? Why can't I not get this done? Or, or why is uh, retirement or transition so hard? I, did, I just don't have the tools. And I laugh. I'm like, yeah, I used to think the same thing, but you've been trained to do almost everything. You have the PACE plan, the primary, alternate, contingency, emergency plan. So you, you have a, the primary plan. When that fails, you go to your alternate. If that fails, you go to your contingency, and then your emergency plan. And when those all fail, and they always, always do, you fall back on your SOPs, which you practice daily. And when I talk to them like that, 
Like, what have you practiced? You know, you've been trained to go to war, shoot, move, communicate, medicate, seize terrain, take a life. But have you been trained to deal with the after effects of taking a life and, and the horrible things that you've seen in the loss of life? And once they pause to consider it, they're like, no, I haven't. And I go, great, you don't need help. You know, we tell everybody at our foundation that we don't need to help you. We're going to train you. And if you've had the training before, we'll retrain you. So it's just that easy. It's not that you need help. It's you haven't been trained in it. So we're going to train you on communication with your spouse, communication with your kids at home, how to how to respect yourself, how to respect others and how to not talk so harshly like we do in the military and how to uh, be aware of where you're at. You know, it's the big joke of I got out of the military and I was at my spouse's party and I told a joke and everybody looked at me like, well, you're crazy. You're like, yeah, because you, you're living in a whole nother world and behaving uh, completely differently. So you have to become aware of that. It's interesting. Um, I had raised like $27 million with our team for my first investment fund. I was like a 28 year old wow. CEO. I didn't know what wow. I was doing at all. Right. That's not stressful. And, uh, I ended up getting a CEO coach, like help me with my marriage, help me with my employees, all things. And it, it like did so much for me that I started doing it for other CEOs for free. And then kind of post 2008, ha had to make a change and um, went, went to work for my consulting firm. I was telling you before the show. And I just kept doing that. Like the way I sold, you know, a few million dollars of leadership training was doing free coaching for the three star or the colonel or whoever could stroke the check. Do free free coaching for them, and they're like, "Oh, all my people need this," and they buy the training for everyone else, right? Absolutely. But um, but I've kind of kept doing that CEO coaching for the last 11, 12 years. I don't do very much of it anymore, just almost more for fun. But um, but over that time, I I have ended up doing a bunch of kind of free advising for especially special operations and in, in, intel community people who are getting out and they want career advice or entrepreneur advice. Yeah. And then you build enough relationship, then we start talking about other stuff you know Absolutely. so I, I really enjoyed your book because you get so deep into things that i've had conversations with guys with but like all my like civilian friends know how much i hang out with all these my special ops buddies and they run our charity or help our charity and stuff but they don't know this other side of those guys um, that your book really brings up and this probably is like less dramatic of an example but to me there's a similarity like there's so many entrepreneurs that build a big business and they spend 20, 30 years getting amazing at this one sport of landing new customers and keeping them happy so they come back again. And then all of a sudden they sell their company and they got millions of dollars. Everyone thinks they're so smart and they know all about money because they're rich. And they have to switch from this like active game of being a hunter to how do I just not lose all this money I got? Like capital allocation of like, they're, they pretty much go into capital preservation mode of like, well, I don't have 30 years to do this over again, so I better keep it this time. Yeah. But they don't have any training for that. We, right. we just had a guy on the show. He has 1,200 members in his groups. And Michael Sonnenfeld, their group's called Tiger 21. 1,200 members. Uh, basically, everybody is kind of between $20 million and a billion dollars personally. Okay? Wow. It's like $140 billion. He says it takes like five years of training on average. For these people to switch from like active business to passive capital preservation. And it's so hard for them because, you know, they, they like had to go get their own Starbucks for the first time in years, right? They're like, there's no assistant for this. Nobody's like kissing their boots. We're like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Like it's just them and their money a lot. And, and all these things about like aggressiveness and, and going for the throat on like, oh, here's this opportunity and the window's going to close. We got to get our business in there and 
and spend the money on the advertising we need to seize this opportunity. Like those kind of things, if you're in capital preservation mode, are kind of the reverse of what you need to do. Oh wow! You, you need to be calculated. It needs to you need to be looking at reliable capital streams in the future. And and he talks about just like nobody cares. Everybody's like, oh, rich person problems. Nobody has any empathy for them, right? That's stressful. I, I tell everybody all the time, when you have that much money, how do you keep it? Well, your bills are probably that high, so you can't lose that money or you're going to lose everything else. Uh, that's that comparison. And yet, who's going to feel, who's going to be feel, feel bad for them? Oh, you poor guy. You've got $50 million. I'm just crying in. I'm just crying for you, right? But at the same time, they're like, they are panicked about potentially losing it and and they have all these self-image issues of like, everybody thinks I'm so good at money. Well, I was good at making it, but I, I actually don't have 30 years of investing a $50 million portfolio. I have no years experience at that, right? right? And so like a lot of my special operations guys that end up coming to me for advice, it's like, we spend time like translating what they actually did into civilian talk for their interviews or things like this, right? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I've heard it from every level. That's why I tell military, post-traumatic stress isn't relegated just for you. Other people have problems and stress. They have trauma, post-trauma stress. I mean, it's not just for us. It, it, CEOs, anyone who puts their A game on every day and then turn that off, you know, athletes. I don't care if you're rich, poor, if you're into something and then it's over, you're going to feel worthless unless you, unless you work on that. And that's going to take years to get past. You know, we're Americans. We want it now. I want a pill, make it better. I want something to get big now, something to get small now, something to sleep, something to wake up. But investing the time is the only way there, right? Only way to get there is to go through it and invest the time and learn along the way and, and make the changes. And everyone tries the, the fast way before they come back around to the long trudge that, that gets you there. Well, I want to talk more about this, but um, let's take a left turn for a minute and let's come back to this. Um, let's, let's talk about the unit. And, um, when you think about the idea of people being trained at this level and like, there's the movie version of it. And then there's the real version of it. Um, what do people who've only seen the movie version of classified level special operations where guys may not be in uniform or may have a beard or these, this kind of level, what are, what are some of the things that are even better about the real version than the movie version? Wow, we all get fooled by the movie version. The guys who sign up, yeah, I want that. It looks great, right? And then you, you go off to war and you come back and you're like, where's that parade and where's all the medals? And by the way, I don't want a medal. It's, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, we're all fooled by that. And then we get back and we wonder why everyone thinks that we're different than we are. You know, one thing it doesn't show is uh, the camaraderie. I mean, they show everybody's drinking and hanging out, but I mean the absolute tight bond that you, um, with anyone, that you struggle with, right? Anyone that you go into struggle with, whether you're in the military or not, if you have a diversity and adversity and you struggle, the harder the struggle is, the, the tighter the bond. That's why basic training is an instant scream session. The drill sergeants jump on the bus and they wake you up screaming at you, throwing your stuff around, laying, they used to lay their hands on you. And, and, and it was a wake-up call for us kids who were joining the bus, you know, showed up on the bus and thinking, oh, our parents will be here or this is just going to be normal life. And uh, and then you're instantly shocked into everybody hates me. Um, nothing I do is is good enough, no matter how good I do it. And I just have to do it better. And it just doesn't show that 
that what, the things it does to you on the inside, right? We're, we're writing a screenplay now um, about all secure my wife's book, Arsenal of Hope. And we keep telling the, the writers, listen, it's not another war movie. Those are out there. Those war movies are out there. Everybody knows war movies. It's some World War II, Vietnam, Korea. I mean, all the action's been done, right? It's just something new. We want to cover the thing that nobody talks about, and that's the, the, it, how it destroys you on the inside unless you get to work on it for, for a long time. People don't ask for help. They think they're trained. And then they're, they're killing themselves at 44 to 48 a day. And it's simply because they can't handle probably the stress of not fitting in anymore, of having that thing that you used to have, you know, um, and then feeling like the burden. For me, it was feeling like a burden and I'm, I've done my thing and I'm no longer worthy to be here. So I might as well just get out of everyone's way. But it really takes a toll. Um, the job takes a toll, whether you go to war or not. Basic training is a toll. I mean, they're, you're, you're completely shaken out of your normal life into a hardened life. And then the longer that you stay in that hardened life, the more you learn of that hardened life. And then the more that becomes your muscle memory and your way of life, the, the farther away from who you used to be you get. You know, And the longer you do those jobs, it's, it's harder to get back to where you are. And it's just that it doesn't show that. It shows the quick scenes of combat and I'm a hero. And, oh, I lost somebody. Let's cry. And, oh, and now the homecoming and we hug. And, and the movie's over. It doesn't show the 10, 13 years on average it takes an operator to ask for help of living with your spouse, you're home now, you're no longer deploying, you're probably screaming at your kids, you know? So it, it, it can never show the struggle that it, that it takes at home. And it doesn't show that we are a war-torn country here in America now after 20 years of war. You know, the streets look different. It's all behind the walls, the pretty little drywall that we live behind, but people are screaming at their kids because they can't connect, they don't feel good enough. They're, they're screaming at their spouses, they're divorcing and they're taking their own lives. Um, or they're getting into crime or getting onto drugs, you know, to cover up the pain and the loss. And it's, I don't see enough movies about that, you know. Um, they say bad news always, you know, gets better, gets better hits on the, on the news, you know, but then, then good news does, but they're always showing this bad news. If we had 40 teachers a day taking their lives, there would definitely be some talk about it, but there's not that much talk about it because everyone considers what you knew what you were doing. You signed up for it and it's kind of your fault. And, in a sense, it truly is, but in a sense, we still need to help these people get back to, you know, where they were. Well, they never get back to where they were before, but to get back to where they can live with their spouses and children at home. Well, what I think is great is somebody who's reached your level that's willing to lead the charge on this. And, and we should probably give some people more context who haven't read the book. Can you talk about SF and the unit and Mogadishu and, and Saddam and standing up yeah. a new squadron and like the you know th this is somebody who reached like what objectively from the outside looks like the pinnacle of a special operations career yeah i never thought i would everything i did was like yeah I'll, sure i'll do that too that sounds funner than what i'm doing now i was always the guy looking for something better something more who gets the better kit um and i just kept going in those directions and when i found myself in the unit I was, I was like, this is great. You know, my first unit trip was skiing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm like, we've never been skiing. You know, I've never gone skiing. And now they're paying for downhill skiing. I got it. And then the next thing, you know, I'm walking over a mountain at two in the morning. I'm like, okay, I get it. This sucks. But, and it was one of those, um, this is a lot better life than I thought it would be, you know? And then two years of training where I'm never home. My first two years in the unit, I mean, I was really never home. And then boom, Somalia pops up. My first combat experience was Somalia, you know, 18-hour firefight, the longest sustained firefight since Vietnam, where I lost 
six close friends, I think 19 died that night. And it was 18 hours of just being trapped in somebody else's backyard, wanting to go home and couldn't go home. And it was a, an experience that I thought I would never have, right? It's a combat is, yeah, we win the day and we go home and we're winners. We're America. We always win. And, and that night we were losing. And I spent that entire night, um, I relented to the fact that I'd be dead. And so I felt better um, the rest of the night knowing that, screw it, let's just do this. Let's just, let's just go. You know, what young kids tell themselves to, to keep going. And that's what changed the rest of my life. Um, but I didn't get to change jobs. I mean, I could have. I didn't change jobs. And uh, it kept going. As soon as that mission was over, you know, we, we mourned the dead that weren't already buried. But we went on another 18 years of my life in that unit doing more and more missions of the same. You know, and it I'm, never ends. Yeah, there's, there's one part I thought was interesting. is you're talking about, so many people are familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down, right? When you talked about water. And lack of water and what a what an issue that was it's just an interesting detail that like i feel like brought me more like in a way in that the movie never could have yeah i mean who knew uh, we're going out for an hour we'll be back i mean okay i'll bring one little bottle of water and stick it right here i want to carry as much i wore a plastic protec helmet we all did i took my kevlar and sewed it myself so i'd make it as small as i could possibly make it so i could move and climb and then i realized you cannot run a bullet <laughs> so you know, I start sitting on Kevlar in the helicopter. So those things that you think of after the fact, sadly, when you see your friend shot in the head and, and drop, and you're like, okay, so the next day I want a, I want a real Kevlar helmet. You know, the Protec uh, doesn't make me that much faster. But just the fact that it never ends, the fact that people dying doesn't end in training, the fact that um, the missions never end, even though you're not at war. I mean, I, I've gone around the world and done things that I, I, I won't, can't talk about that were terrifying. Um, but we weren't at war. And if you got caught, I don't know what would happen, right? I mean, it would be a horrible thing for me, obviously. And then on to the capture of Saddam, where, you know, we finally caught Saddam that night. We finally had him in there and, and handed him off to the and, helicopters. And after that mission, it was, so what? We got another hit tomorrow night for somebody else, so it just never ends. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think about some of my different friends, special operations community, I'd be interested in your thought. Um, so there's this Austrian philosopher from 100 years ago named Martin Buber. And he says a lot of our people problems come not from what we say or do, but how we were thinking about people when we said or did, did it. Like, are we thinking about them like a real life human being like me and you? Or are they, he calls it an object. Are they, are they an object or, or a human being kind of thing, right? Right. And so I think about these conversations and like one guy who, I won't say what service he was in, not same as yours, but, um, you know, we had some real long, hard talks about just how tough life was because he had kind of dehumanized people. And, and it, had, it was so rough for him in the years after. And then I have a different SF friend who um, actually saved my life uh, about uh, nine years ago. It's a different story. Um, but uh, he, he felt like one of the reasons that he didn't have the same level of trauma coming back was kind of asking himself the hard questions up front, where he said he felt like by not objectifying people and by being honest, like, wow, this is going to suck for this guy's family to be without him. You know, I need to shoot this guy. I would not be fair to all of my teammates who I told them I was going to have their back. It wouldn't be fair to my wife who I said I was going to come home to after this tour. Like, I would be. 
I would be irresponsible to not shoot this person. And yet, it's going to be tough for him. It's going to be so bad for his family and his mom. And I, and I need to do it anyways. And he felt like by, by not objectifying so much, it made it easier for him coming back. Do you have any thoughts about that or do you see it differently? I never even considered it that way. You know what? I did actually a couple of times um, after the fact. It was brought to me, you know, during those events that I thought about it. And I sat back in the dark and crying, you know, in the dark with no one could see me, just some kid screaming over his father that was just shot. And I thought, well, let me drag him off the street to be respectful. Of course, I drag him into his own family's driveway, you know, and they come out to see what's going on. And there's your dad. I'm like, you know, and I thought about it then. I never thought about it previous. I, I was always robot mode, considering my job, those SOPs. I turn left, you have a threat, I kill you. And I, I talk about it that I didn't know if you were a child, a man, a woman. You know, I looked at two hands. And if you had a threat in one of those hands, you were dead. You know, it wasn't, well, are you really going to threaten me? It was just that was the way it was. Threat, threat, no, no. Okay, I move on. And I didn't consider it till later. And that's when the moral injury creeps in, right? We always consider it later. There's always an after game party. There's always years down the road where you're thinking of that dynamic event that altered my life as well many, many times to take a life. And then to pause and consider. And you have to let, I think you have to let yourself do that. When you don't, you just struggle the rest of your life. And I, I thought it was my protection. So I didn't consider it. When I first met Jen, she's like, so... Years later, I think she asked me about Somalians. You know, can you tell a Somalian? I'm like, oh, yeah, you know I can, man. I can look right at one and tell one. And I'd get that, yeah, that, that look, you know. She's like, do you still hate him? <laughs> and to put it out there, I'm like, I stopped. I'm like, what, what? No, I don't really hate them. I mean, I, the ones that I hated are dead. The one, you know, the, I didn't really think about it. So I had, to, I had to consider it that, yeah, I wasn't putting perspective into it. And so I started to, and it started to hurt a lot. But that's when I started to heal, right? I, I had to face it to heal. So someone who faces it as they're doing it, you're going to get a thousand people say, well, you're not, you're not in the job then, right? Well, if you practice it, you're in the job, right? If you can practice it and do it, you're still doing your job. So I wouldn't judge anybody. But if it helped him at the time, um, like, like we're saying now that, hey, while you're in, we go speak to active duty organizations. You need to consider this now. You know, or at least think about it now. So when it does hit you, you've heard about it. And now you'll reach out versus I feel weird. What do I do? Oh, wait a minute. Tom and Jen said that one day that I would expect this. So maybe I should reach out for something to somebody. So we're planting those seeds, but it certainly destroys a lot of people down the road. So to manage it up front, if it works for that person, I think that's great because it's going to it's going to affect you. And when you bring it home, it's going to affect your family and that's going to make things even worse. That's what everyone asks for help for us. 90, 92% of everybody that asks us for help, sell me at home. I've got the job down, you know, and, and I've got, I, if not, I can read a book on it or my buddies will help me on it, but I don't know how to do this relationship thing because I've not paid attention to it. You know, I've not practiced it. I've not worked at it. So I think someone that handles it while it's happening is probably healthier. Um, you'll get a lot of people arguing saying you can't do both, you know. Um, I probably would argue the fact that my muscle memory would stop me but if that's something that he practices and did and it helped him, then, yeah, I think that would be great because we all eventually face it. When you think about, um, you know, so our show, like if you look on the stats on the podcast, we're about 75% male. On YouTube, we're almost 80% males listening. Okay. Uh, any advice for husbands and dads? 
What's what's something that's been helpful to you as you've been com- becoming a better version of yourself? Stop fighting it. <laughs> Whatever it is for you, you know, against the spouse, stop fighting it. When I gave in or relented to being so smart and knowing all about me, you know, um, my biggest message is don't wait for rock bottom. The joke is, oh, rock bottom is something you can spring off of, right? <laughs> you don't have to kick as hard from the bottom to push to the top. I'm like, yeah, you don't have to work as hard, you know, and we didn't do that in our jobs. We didn't wait till we were so bad at shooting that we might have gotten killed to finally start practicing again, right? We always maintained it. We didn't know it. Somebody taught us how to do it, you know? They didn't help us learn to shoot. They didn't help us do CQB. They taught us. So you can be taught other things like relationships and issues. So we tell everyone, we don't help you. You don't need help. Nobody likes to be told they need help, especially a commando. I don't need help. I, I can do anything myself and to include kill myself. You know, drink myself to death or shoot my face off or take pills. Yeah, they'll do it all the way, all the way, all the way alone and then leave their families. And, and to me, that's the, you know, that's this most selfish act you could do, right? Take your problems and dump them onto someone else while you, while you walk out of them. Um, when you could have gotten to work. So all the guys out there get to work, you know, um, it's embarrassing. It's hard, but that's what leaders do. And if you want to be a leader, quit hiding in the shadows. Get out on the dance floor when it's empty. Start doing that funny, weird dance that everybody's laughing at you. But sooner or later, they join you. And then the whole dance floor is full and everybody's doing the same dance. And it happens every single time. So for everyone out there that's struggling or not struggling even, if you're not struggling, get right at it and start grabbing down and reaching up and pulling other people up, helping them, because that's what leaders do. And if it's embarrassing, you do it anyway. Okay, so my follow-up to this is for folks who are starting to recognize, oh, I need to make some changes. You know, veterans are not, right? Right. And they're looking at their ratio of choices I'm proud of, choices I'm not proud of, and they don't like that ratio, right? And so they're, they're telling themselves, I'm going to do better. And then they slip up again. And the discouragement and the disappointment are kicking in and the what, shame, anything like this, right? Um, what's, what's a hack? What's a tip? What do you tell yourself to overcome disappointment, discouragement, forgiveness. You have to forgive yourself and move on. Shut up. That shame cycle will kill you. The shame cycle is what kills people. The, the, the negative comments to the spouse, the children. Now I'm going to beat myself up for a month, right? For that. Now the spouse, or kids might forgive me an hour later. They might get over it and never think about it again, but it's that thing in your head that you'll think about for 25, 30, 100 years until you die that you think, oh, remember I made fun of my dad as a kid because his hand shook and it felt bad. And your father never thought about it again, but you thought about it for 50, 60 years and never brought it up. Then you finally bring it up and they're like, what are you talking about? I never even thought of that. So we're always harder on ourselves than we are on anybody else. And and we will destroy ourselves that way. We will literally destroy ourselves that way. But forgiveness, you got to forgive yourself for whatever it is and start over. I tell everybody you're driving a car. You're going a thousand miles an hour. You're on the Audubon, right? You're, you're going fast and you're looking in the rearview mirror. It's the smallest thing in front of you and you're looking at everything you did, judgment, rewards, whatever. But that big glass window where you're going is the biggest thing to look out of and you're going to run your car off the road into a cliff or something because you're looking at what you did and you're judging and, and laughing and, and celebrating and we're putting yourself down for it versus looking to the future while you're in the present and being in the now. So if I could tell guys, be in the now and forgive yourself. And if you script tomorrow, guess what? That's one mistake that you can forgive yourself for instead of yeah. all of them again. Uh, you know what that makes me think of? Um, 
two of my favorite movies have become Groundhog Day with Bill yeah. Murray. Yeah. And uh, what I call Special Ops Groundhog Day, a, a Tom Cruise movie, Live, Die, Repeat, The Edge of mm. Tomorrow. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what I love about those is, like, whatever mistakes they made the day before kind of don't matter. It's like right. every day is a new life. Well, like, there's this stoic thing from 2,500 years ago of, like, treating every day like a new life. And when I can remember that, I think like, okay, it's, it's 2.07 p.m. where I'm at today. How's this life going? What do I have to do from 2 p.m. on to have enjoyed this life, you know, minute today? Minute by minute. Right? Minute by minute. And like, you know? I think about when I get to hang out with, with my friends from, from your former unit, uh, I, I'm always trying to get them, you know, we, we often go shooting together. And if I sit around obsessed about being embarrassed of how bad, how bad I missed the last shot or something like that, that does not help me make the next one. You right? were thinking like, the same thing. I kind of have to like with. <laughs> everybody you were with Sorry? was thinking the same thing. Everybody you were with that day were thinking the same thing. Like, oh, I cannot screw up. Now the best shooter there was thinking the same thing that you were thinking. Like, I can't screw up in front of this guy. He'll think I'm horrible. I, I know I would be. And you're thinking I can't screw up in front of him because they're really good, right? Yeah. And um, what's funny is that like, I think about it like video games. Like, I don't know if you remember like the old. Nintendo's like back in the day, there'd be like these cheat codes where you could get unlimited lives or something, yeah. right? And I think about it like in some ways, it's almost like we get unlimited lives. Of like, no matter, like I, for me, I can get a lot of shame uh, around business of like, people pay me quite a bit of money per hour to get business advice from me, and then I will go ahead and like not have built my own sales system out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're having a hard month. And it's because I didn't build the sales system and I knew this was going to happen. I didn't do it. And I can sit there and not make any progress towards the goal, just beating myself up about like, I'm supposed to be good at this. I, I know what to do. And like, really like get into like, this sounds so in like, so trivial compared to the kind of things you guys have run up against. But like, I can really rip myself apart of like, I know better than this. Why haven't I done better than this? Yeah. And that does not actually help me make progress. What helps me make progress is thinking about Groundhog Day and the Stoic, like every day, every day is a life thing, and going like, I, I, I almost like imagine it like a video game of like I'm just gonna push, I'm just gonna push restart because I've got unlimited lives. Why and, not? Why not? And go like, okay, I don't have to wait until I go to sleep and start and wake up again tomorrow like Groundhog Day. Like, it's it's two ten now. At two eleven, this can be the new life. I can just I can street from two eleven on like my new life. And uh, there's this Viktor Frankl quote. Do you know the Ryan Holiday book, uh, The Obstacle is the Way? No, I don't. Oh, it's so good. You'd love it, actually. I'm going to write that down. He, he takes all these stoic quotes and then gives you modern-day stories around them, whether it's uh, Amelia Earhart and how she overcame all sorts of biases, become a female pilot, whether it's military, sports, business. It's great, right? But one of the chapters starts with this Viktor Frankl quote of you know the Holocaust survivor. And he says something along the lines of... Um, any man can change at any instant and become who they want to be. And to me, it's this idea of like, if I make new choices, I can't help but become a different person. But it's very hard for me. Like, I think I have an ego of like, I should know better. I should have done better. And like, takes this like humility part on my part that I'm not very good at of like, who cares? Who cares that you shouldn't have done this? Right. Now is now. What are you going to do now? Right. So if you had any advice for me of how to like, 
subvert my ego, how to downplay my ego of what I should have done and how I should have done better and just do better now. What advice do you have for me? I need counseling, Tom. Practice. You have to practice it over and over again. I had to practice and I still screw it up. I'll still screw it up. I had the affinity. Uh, he's an asshole, but he's fair. And I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm mean to people, but am I mean? No, I'm just direct. You know, I wasn't meaning to be mean and I would sell that. I'm, yeah, I'm an asshole, but I mean, I'm fair, right? You, I won't, you won't get screwed over. Whatever you do, you did. And if I'm an, if I yell at you about it or whatever and send you on your way, that's it. Get over it, right? And if, if you got fired, you deserved it. And it was one of those things where I would, I would never fire anybody unless they needed fired, you know, and I was always work with somebody, but getting over themselves, people will not get out of their own ways, they, right? They won't get out of their own way. The, the story, we're, like I said, we're harder on ourselves than anyone else is. So if you can forgive and move on, you're going to have to practice because you're not going to believe yourself. Learning these new techniques that we're trying to teach now with, um, with you know, our coaches and what we teach other people is the fact that, you, you know, you've been this way for so long. You've been the way you are for so long. You, you can't just say, learn something new from me or somebody else and then go do it. You're going to do it and you're going to screw it up. You're going to forget to do it the next time. You're going to remember and half do it. And then you're going to, hey, what was that thing you said? And then if you keep going, you'll get it down. And then what, 90 days to make it habit? If you do it at every day, 10,000 repetitions for muscle memory. I mean, if you're breaking a bad habit, double that to 20,000. It's like shooting. I, 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 and I tell these guys, I'm always trying to connect with them in the way that they know something, muscle memory, like shooting. They're like, oh yeah, shooting. I'll go think of shooting. You're teaching someone how to shoot. What's the worst? What's the worst thing you have to defeat? Oh, uh, anticipation and recoil, you know, where everybody flinches. I've had guys change the zero on their pistols, but they flinch so consistently. It's that brain trigger connect where you're trying to hold the gun down. You know, you're trying to fight the recoil. You can't. You can't. You do a ball and dummy drill, you'll see yourself click, up, click, 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 click. Now you're not, you know, arch, arcing down anymore. Now you click. Now I put a bullet in there. Boom. You hit the bullseye. You're like, whoa, I, got, I guarantee you a bullseye every time because, but I have to double the time because I have to break your old habit. And our old habit was diverting to the negative, diverting to the dry humor, diverting to the walls up. There's no emotion here, you know, because happiness might hurt me. So you ha it takes twice as long to learn those things. So anybody, anybody tries, anytime anybody tries to teach you something, you're just going to have to practice it over and over again. You know, we think, oh, I learned a new technique. I'm better. Man, I've been working that for nine years. You know, getting better for nine years with a technique up. I'm not good enough at it yet. I, and then, oh, the good days last 90 days now. And then I, then I have a meltdown. Oh, okay. Well, that's better than every day or every hour. And it was every other hour, you know? So it's gone to about every two, three, four months now, you know, you might have a fit. And we can kind of deal with that, you know, <laughs> and work into it. But it takes time. So people have to have persistence and be patient with themselves. And I would say the same for you. Be persistent and patient and expect that whatever it is you want to learn, it's going to take you a long time to do it over and over again before you do it without thinking and before you do it really well. So specifically with that, do you have any advice for overcoming like unhelpful pride? I'd like, well, I'm the kind of guy that shouldn't made a mistake, shouldn't have made a mistake. Mm, yeah, and and just being honest, like, oh, I'm just a human. I'm not a special kind of human. I'm just a human. And humans make mistakes. Yeah, that's why that's how we learn, right? It's kind of a badge of honor to screw up because then you hopefully you won't do it again as much and you'll learn from it. People who live in in the sweet life, you know, oh, I don't have to work, you know, I'm, you know, you take it to the farthest extreme of some child raised in a wealthy family. 
sent to the nicest schools just because got in that kid's not trying that hard and things are happening for that that kid and he's going to grow up and not have a plan or or practiced um through struggle or adversity so when it hits no matter what it is it's going to be a nightmare it's going to be heavy and they won't be able to deal with it versus the kid who grows up with nothing and has to fight for everything and you know and if they don't turn into a real piece of crap you know if they're raised right even the struggle you learn more through that. You learn more through struggle and adversity and you become smarter and better for it. So I'm actually kind of, I kind of embrace the mistakes if you can get past the self-humiliation of putting yourself down for it and realize that I'm not the only one that's made this mistake. This planet's been around a long, long time. There's people that have come and gone that have done the same thing. It's scribbled in stone. It's scribbled in the pyramids. It's painted on walls and caves about struggle, you know, and adversity and overcoming. It's not new Which to is us. interesting. Like, again, I remember first getting to know guys from from the unit and like being surprised at how diverse their interests were, like woodworking and like identifying Horti- plants. Horticulture. I say horticulture. Yeah. Like, okay, you talk about horticulture. There's a guy from A who's a super close friend of mine. We actually do business together. Eddie. And he ended up getting hired by Fort Lewis on a survey to go identify every plant on all of Fort Lewis. Is his name Eddie? because he was, he'd been so into it right? it's like just not the like that's not the movie version of, of guys from the unit no i had and a guy so, on my team uh an otc that was horticulturist he went to the Ar- you know the arboretum or whatever fayetteville um and went and checked out the flowers and the bushes and the plants every day and was laughing at him he's a ranger previous ranger and everything <laughs> what's the difference right it's probably squared away and mentally mentally stable well my point is like it is one thing that I have a lot of respect for guys from the unit of like being willing to be bad at things and learn them. Like I look at like, again, my consulting experience kind of the last 10 years training from like regular, you know, big army, big army through the different levels of special operations. And what I find is like the further up in special operations, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like the more elite the unit the more self-confidence there was and the more willingness there was to learn something they didn't already know, where I found like lower down, like I found more self-consciousness of like constantly needing to have the cardboard cutout version of themselves. Do you see it that way or do you disagree? I see it that way. I see, um, what do we call it? You know, you 201 file in the back of your window. You see people driving their vehicles on post. They've got every sticker of every school they've been through. Like they need the validation, right? It's, it's, the ones who do the least seem to scream the loudest the most. Um, the ones who have seen the least combat, you know, talk about combat the most and how hard it was. Uh, you know, it's wanting to fit in, I think, versus actually participating and, and realizing, well, that was horrible, you know, or that that was difficult and, and appreciating how hard it was to get there. I mean, there are a lot of people in my, in my previous organization that had big heads about what they did. Now, was it confidence, cockiness, whatever? I don't know. It got the job done, and you have to do that to get the job done. But generally, looking back from how I judged people then, and like I just did a podcast with Pat McNamara um, recently, and I learned more about him on that podcast than I knew about him the entire time in the unit that I knew about it, because I also saw that external view of Pat McNamara. And then getting down and asking those questions, I'm like, oh, man, you're the same as the rest of us. So realizing that <laughs> and having been, yeah. He's booked on the show. He's coming on in <laughs> a little bit. He's awesome. He's awesome. He's open. I didn't know that. I was like, we're going to pull this shit out of Mac. You know, and then he opened up, man, with everything I, I that I feel 
and it and it shocked me and it was amazing and i learned more and more and more about people out there um because we all have that wall that face that mask we put up to protect ourselves and we all act a certain way especially around other other you know like you're in the 300 getting ready to go to battle you're gonna, you're not gonna act like you're nervous about anything you're gonna show that dude to your left and right i don't care let's do this right so whether you mean it or not that's just how you had to do it and so it, it taught me a lot later that man people are definitely different than that label you look at and put on them really quick so it's it, it, it pays to get to know people you know it pays to spend some time and actually ask some questions uh labels are so rarely helpful right rare when a label's helpful especially when it's self-placed by what we think without knowing typically yeah. it's what we think we don't know if we knew something you don't need a label it's you know the answer but when you don't you have to label it because you're afraid of it or don't understand it you know um uh peter donovan who used to run who was the executive director of our charity form, former sea guy like yourself he um i remember we would have problems happen at the charity and he was so uninterested in blame and so interested in what are we going to do about it it was like inspirational he's like kind of mentor to me that way right and so i'm interested like um when you think about reducing a habit of blaming others for our problems or 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 like reducing the chances of talking ourselves into being trapped by the situation instead of being honest about what we can do about it what kind of tips do you have for getting better at that realize you're not perfect right that's judgmental i tell you what when i would get mad at people for making mistakes what was i perfect right i mean what i had to start asking myself as i grew up why'd they make the mistake did they not know to do it they didn't know how to do it or did they not want to do it and once i started evaluating those three things that kind of made it easy. Uh, you know, if somebody screwed up, didn't do what I told them to, I, I say, hey, so did you know to do that? No. All right, problem's over. I don't have to blame you. You didn't know. So I guess what I thought isn't true. Did you know to do it? Yeah. All right, well, did you know how to do it? No. Okay, still can't blame you. My fault. I should have trained you. And if you knew how to do it and you knew to do it and you didn't do it, now I know who to blame, right? So it was one of those... Um, number one, you got to fix it, whatever it is anyway, right? If it's a problem and it needs done, you just get it done. And then you can do in the AAR process, you know, after action review of what happened, who didn't get it done. And, okay, let's not do it next time. But to grab a hold of something and to hold on to that, like, you really screwed that up and just keep labeling that person as that, you know, um, without them being repetition on their own or repetitive about the mistake. That's just someone who's insecure in their own abilities, you know, or someone who's just that person that likes to blame others for every mistake that they never made themselves. I mean, I'm not the one to ever judge anybody. I've, I've learned that. I've made every mistake on the planet twice and, and, you know, I learned from it, but I don't judge others for it. So I, I think pause is what I tell people. Embrace the pause because we like to right away, you know, we like to act now. And if I paused and gave it a little bit of thought, I probably won't say that silly thing I was going to say right away. I could probably break it down and think a little bit. And then articulate an answer that means something more. And I've learned that as I've, grew, I've grown up, is to embrace that pause and think a little bit before I open my mouth, thinking, I, oh, I know everything right away. Well, um, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but besides yourself, can you tell us another success story from the foundation? Oh, my God. Every one of them except one. You know, I tell you, I love it when people come in and they come to our retreats to work with her spouses. So I tell you, the one that didn't work was the guy who brought his spouse to a retreat early on and lied to her and told her it was a spa weekend. And so she showed up. He wasn't honest. So that didn't work out. I don't think they're married anymore. Typically, we've saved um, 
not save. We don't save anybody. We help people save themselves and save their own marriages, right? Because we don't do the work. We just provide tools. And so everyone's done the work when they've been presented with the opportunity. We've had some high-level generals that have come in and um, turned around their thought process. We've had some people who um, have said, I was going to take my life, and I heard your podcast, I heard your book at the right time. So that makes us feel good that we're we're out there a little bit. We want to be out there more. But I tell you, um, we've had some pretty yeah, so just to tell, people. Tell, tell us one story. You don't have to name a name, but tell us a story about somebody. We had a couple that had filed paperwork to divorce, and they had, had issues, um, abuse issues, just gone, the, the military life. Um, and they had filed paperwork, and they were saying they were out the door, and they had already separated their stuff. They were living separately, and a friend of theirs asked if they'd come on their retreat, and I said, well, look, significant other, you know, are you wanting to work on your relationship, and do you have post-traumatic stress? Yes and yes. All right, I don't care where you're at then. So they came in, and the spouse jumped up and was heading to the airport during one, one event, and the guy came running over, and he said, uh, she's out of here. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Well, she's not doing it. I didn't do something right. And then, you know, emotions. When emotions are flying, there's nothing getting done. And, and I said, well, let's just wait an hour and see what happens, man. I mean, I'm, I'm not running you to the airport. It's a two-hour drive. You know, you're going to have to wait. And uh, by the way, we got nine other couples here that are trying to do this stuff. Wake up the next morning. They show up. They're both there. They're, they're back at it. We pull them out, put them in the front of, of everyone, and t not talk about that event, but talk about other events. And I'll tell you what. They have turned around. They've re renewed their vows. They obviously didn't get divorced. Um, they, they're sticking with it. Their relationship's stronger than ever, and they're helping us in our foundation now help other people. So it's one of those, man, they were heading out the door, hated each other, got in a fight at the retreat, and stuck it out long enough to realize that those tools worked. And it wasn't easy after that, but they, they would call back and forth and say, hey, did you use your tools? Did you prep? Oh, yeah, that's right. And go back to it. And those tools do work, you know, to slow everything down, to embrace the pause and, and be less judgmental and more curious about what's going on with the process, which is kind of like the start of our retreats, you know. We say, get rid of the judgment, open up to curiosity. Because judgment, you know, when we're blaming and pointing fingers, get nothing done. But curious about what you can learn, it was helpful. So to see that happen, and that was the guy, there was another guy called the Angry Garden Gnome. When they showed up, him and his spouse was just SF, angry, he had a beard, red beard, he had a beard in his hand, long hair, and he's just sitting, never smiled. For two days, didn't smile. And when we got to talking about their issue, and it was going on walks every weekend, was their issue. They'd blow out kids, dogs, trying to get her out of the car. They would fight. It would be a horrible day. And I go, well, who doesn't have a horrible day with kids and dogs and trying to get everybody out at the door at the same time? So it's the management of expectations that helped them realize that, you know, and I'll tell you what, the next day he came in, I was like, did you get a haircut? Did you trim your beard? His face, he was smiling. It was lighter. And I still joke about this to this day. It went from the angry garden gnome to just the happy uh, Smurf guy that just, and it was one day, a 24-hour period from the grumpiness to the opening of, oh, we both wanted to have a perfect walk. We were both screwing it up, trying to make it perfect, and we were fighting with each other, thinking the other, but we wanted the same thing. And so they finally realized when I'm trying to be right and you're trying to be right, the only thing that's losing is the relationship. So they turned to work towards the relationship, and inevitably they're helping each other. And I'll tell you what, that was such a good story when I saw that. I was like, I, I remember elbowing my wife every time. 
that couple looks horrible, you know, or, oh my God, this is going to be the worst retreat ever. Every time this is the worst retreat ever. The day one, I'm nervous. It's not working. It's not. And then day two, I'm like, okay, okay. It's, it's working. Everybody's opening up now. So it's always scary for us because we really want to make that difference. But I love seeing people elbow each other as we talk. So that group therapy does work when someone opens up the other person. I know the problems are the same. So they, they have wives are elbow. That's you. That's you. And I'm like, yeah, I notice. And then we start writing notes. I'm like, all right, let's tackle this now. And, uh, we shift every time, and I love the way people open up, and I love to see them connecting when they leave. You know, the way they look at each other, it's different. Kidding. I bet that's so rewarding. It, it is. It's terrifying when we start because it doesn't look like it's working because they're, they're coming in. And when you travel with your spouse and you're traveling to a marriage retreat to maybe open up or sing Kumbaya or hold hands, they don't know. They fight. So now we text people as they're traveling. Remember, you're traveling for each other. Remember, you're coming to experience a weekend of fun. You know, remember, this is just pause. Don't argue. And they're like, you're right. We were fighting the whole way. I, go, I know I would fight with my wife the whole way, too. So that's why we talk about it. And they're very happy, happy that we open up and actually address those things that people normally don't talk about. Like, oh, you fought all the way here. But like, we all fought all the way here. Everybody fights when they travel. It's stressful. So we teach them different ways to do that as well. You know, I, I love hearing these stories because, like, I see so many parallels to the entrepreneur world. I mean, just long hours, trips, they're gone, impatient, divergence of goals. I mean, it's just, there's, even if it's not to the same level, there's so many parallels. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain personality that joins special operations or joins uh, like really like purebred entrepreneur, visionary level stuff, yeah. or like, you know, becomes a pro action sports athlete or, a, you know, like, <laughs> right. And absolutely. And there's some aspects of that that are not great for fatherhood and being a husband or 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 motherhood or, or being a wife. Right? right. And and um, and just like for me, I really love these stories of going like, oh, it's OK. Like, I'm just being a regular human messing this up. Like, this is like the whole test of life. Like, what choices am I going to make with the information I've been given? Right. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, I know we're kind of out of time, but I got to have one more story. These stories are great. Yeah, I tell you, um, from a retreat, we I love I want to print some T-shirts because I, I think two retreats ago I said something. I'm always trying to think of something to make people laugh during those retreats. It gets real intense and and I'll, I'll make some smart ass comment, make everybody laugh. And oh, they get it. I think last one retreat, I, you know, I. I would say, just relax and say good shit to each other. And somebody's like, I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. And I'm like, oh, you know, it was just say good shit to each other. And the next retreat was more of a, the manage of the expectations kind of thing where they, where they all want to go out and have a perfect night. They all want to go out and do everything perfectly. And, and it was, and I told him, I said, you know, your expectations are so high. You're going to screw this night up. You, oh, we got to do these tools. It's got to be perfect. Got to read these letters we wrote to each other, you know, at dinner tonight. I said, just go out and have an okay time. You're all struggling to have a perfect night. And the second somebody does something to ruin that perfect night, you know, because then you're both pissed at each other that it's not a perfect night. It'll never be a perfect night. Christmas morning will never be perfect. A lot of military, a lot of veterans ruin holidays, birthdays. Um, why? You always get the why, why, why? Well, it's because we're not good at it because so many people died and we're thinking, no, I just, I just think it's we're not good at happiness um, unless we work at it. We're not good at Feeling joy, right? And if you can't feel the joy, you won't exude the joy and you won't show the joy. So everybody's like, why are you grumpy on Christmas? I'm not grumpy. Just open your presents and shut up, you know? But if you can just take that, 
get rid of the expectations and just have an okay day. And so everybody started laughing. Hey, how was your date night last night? It was all right. You know, it wasn't anything big. But the stress of making it a perfect night made it a great night, you know? So it, it was one of those, yeah, just have an okay day. And somebody's like, I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. And I'm like, I should sell T-shirts. But the lower the expectations of having the perfect night or having that date night that we need so bad versus let's just, you know, what do you want to do? Sit around the fire and have a beer, drink, you know, uh, eat a sandwich versus let's go do this, 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 and this, and something's going to get screwed up. And then it's a fight, you know, or then it's a, I ruined it, especially with the, the military people who are like, well, I ruined it. I'll take responsibility. I did it. I got a problem. I have PTSD. So I did that. You know, I, I know I did that for a while. That was me. I'm sure it was me. Once I lowered the expectations and so I, the whole group came back. Uh, this is our very last retreat just last month. They all came back. Everybody was like, we had an okay time, but they, they had to write down what they did that night. And some of the stories were amazing about how they connected. One couple didn't go to sleep because they stayed up the entire night talking about something they never talked about before and working through issues they'd never worked through. So all because they didn't try to have the perfect night. Like early on when we tried to have perfect nights, um, go out and really put effort into this, guys. Really, really put effort into it and pay attention to your spouses. And they were like, okay, I have to first screw up. You know, the first this or that, and it was an argument. You were told to do this, and you didn't. So I'm like, just go have an okay night, and don't worry about anything. And that was the best way to do it, the lowering of the expectations. But I always love trying to tell them how to have dates. And some of these people have never had a date with their spouse without their kids in 20 years. They haven't had the money or the time. And so it's a good way to learn how to be with each other again and learn who each other are. Okay, now I can't let you go. Now we got to have one more. This will, be, this will be the last one. I got to have one more. Oh, I did a, I did a unit-specific retreat in Asheville. It was like only unit people, but I'll do it in Asheville since it's closer to where you're all at. And you don't have to go as far in case something happens. And I tell you what, that's some grumpy people. Wait, wait, I was worried. I was in my worst retreat for me to start. So I had my expectations were like, they're going to grill me. They're going to, I mean, some were active, some were retired. So, and I had been, I'd been out for about a, uh, nine years, 10 years at the time. I was terrified they were going to eat my lunch, and, uh, and so I was making it horrible. And guys were getting together, and, and, and they started to connect. And when one of them, one of the guys who I'd known since Somalia was quiet, and he didn't talk the whole time, and I'm glad he came. And I never really thought he had a problem. Anyway, he was always just quiet. And his, his, his spouse started to talk on the last day, and she said, you know, He's never opened up. He's always at dinner with the family. He never talks to the family. He's always, he's like, I'm pulling guard. I'm, I'm making sure everybody else has fun, you know? And I'm like, oh, I got you. You got your back to the wall. You're watching the door. You're looking for threats. And you're not, you're not there, right? And she's like, everybody missed you. The grandkids miss you. Your kids miss you. I miss you. He's like, but I'm doing it for everyone else. He finally came up and realized after that conversation, he's like, you know, I thought PT, I just came for my spouse. I just came because, you know, I thought, well, I'll give it a try so she doesn't yell at me. He said, I didn't think I had PTSD. He goes, I, I didn't think that was for me. I thought it was for other people. He goes, and I, I finally realized I did. And the day, two days after they got back from the retreat, he booked a, a spa retreat weekend or a week with his, for his wife to go away. And he started our six-week mind and body reset. And he sent her away because he knew he was going to give up caffeine and he was going to be a wreck. So he sent his wife away. Not to deal with it. And he started our six-week mind and body reset, stuck with it the entire time. He's now one of the most healthy guys I've known, older than me, um, mentally healthy. Family's doing great. 
And his ex-wife hit us up saying, oh, hey, can ex-wives of commandos get help too? I'm like, come on in. She goes, he's doing so well with his new wife. You know, kind of a dig, I get it. But he's doing so well, I thought I'd reach out. And I'm like, well, of course, you're all concluded, you know? So we were helping her too. And it was one of those, they co-parent better now, you know, with their kids. And he's, he's still, he's doing better in his new marriage and she's seeing somebody. So it was one of those, you help several generations and types of people that, um, didn't even know they had a problem and just showed up for the free trip and to help his wife understand why he's weird. And he realized, I'm not present, am I? I am pulling guard. I am still being a military guy instead of being in the family. So that was good. That was an unexpected kind of joy that I got out of that one. And that always spreads. That's people so always talk about it and share it with other people. So that's when more people sign up for the retreats. So. Okay, this is your, this is your next book. This is ah, your next book. I'm serious. Just stories. I would, I'll buy your first copy. Just all these stories. They're awesome. We're working. Uh, we're, well, we're working. We're t working on working on. We're talking about, and we've been talking about it for a bit, um, starting a new book, Jen and I together. Kind of like, I don't know what it is, like spiritual warfare, couples warfare, how to, you know, how to fight the demons that, are, that make us all make poor decisions in our own lives or something. But bringing in those stories, um, like my wife's book is more of stories of not just her and me, but other spouses. So it kind of brings in the whole community um, a little bit more. It's funny that we're all the same. I tell everybody when we talk to cops, CEOs, uh, it doesn't matter. I go, if you spend time at your job, you're not at home. And if you're not at home, you're not with your family. And if you're not with your family, they miss you, you miss them. You're going in different directions. So if you don't fill that time later and reconnect, you're going to grow apart. And it's just as hard of a struggle for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're getting shot at, making big business deals, or trying to sell things for a company or yourself. You know, You're missing your family at home. They miss you. And when you get home, it doesn't matter. You feel the same. My son told my, I mean, I'm Jen now, I, I just wish my dad would have worked at Home Depot. He didn't really know what I did. He just knew I wasn't home. So he doesn't care, you know, so he just want, they just want us home. So it doesn't matter what job you do. It really doesn't. It's how you feel on this side that we all, that's where we all connect. And I feel like there's such hope in your message that um, it's like, I feel like it's kind of like that cliche, like the two best times to plant a tree 20 years ago and right now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Like the two best times to work on this stuff 20 years yep. ago and right now. Yeah. You can only get to one. You can only get to one option, and yeah. that's always the right now. Right. So, anyway, start right now. We call it the, I think Jen, she took it from somebody else, the, the three second rule. Right. If you think, if you're sitting on the couch after work and you're like, I should go on a run, you have three seconds to get up and go put your shoes on and start that run, or you're going to default to the easy thing, and that's watching Netflix or something. You're going to, always going to default to something that's easier because your, your body and brain is going to do it. So the three-second rule is make that decision. We all have those, tomorrow I'll work out. You know, Tomorrow I'm going to start something. You know, Monday I'm going to work out and go to the gym. Go. Go right now. Go right now. Whatever it is you think of, three seconds to start it, and that'll start the habit. Well, listen, I'm a fan of the book. Obviously, I think everybody... Should be going and getting their own copy of All Secure. I did. I bought mine on Audible. Um, what's the uh, website for the foundation or other places on social? And where can they listen to your podcast and all the things? Yeah, um, all the things. So our website is allsecurefoundation.org. Um, you can go there and get everything, basically. Um, you can reach out for help. You can reach out to donate. You can reach out to ask questions. The six-week mind and body's there. Um, and we, Jen and I field every email. It doesn't go anywhere else but us. And then from, from us, it goes into where it needs to go. And typically, that'll be us responding and then handing it off to whatever might be needed. Um, we're on 
we're on, well, no, we're not on Twitter. <laughs> I got to get back on Twitter now, I guess, but I, I didn't know how to use Twitter anyway. We're on Facebook as All Secure Foundation and Instagram as All Secure Foundation and LinkedIn as well. Um, or you can find me anywhere, but I would tell people to reach out to us anywhere um, on any avenue and we'll, we'll find it. I, every day I surf through them and try to find all the messages, combine them, and then reach out to everybody that's reached out. Podcasts are on all major platforms. Um, we just started that one, so that's doing pretty well. Is it the All Secure podcast? What's the actual name? All Secure, uh, All Secure with Tom and Jen. Okay. And, and what will people get if they tune into those? You're going to get life lessons from people like me, people better than me. You're going to get life lessons from sex experts. Um, we're talking to priests. We're talking to professional sports players. We're talking to experts in the field of mental health and things like that. So. It's more of a, hey, we want to talk not just military, but things that help everyone, including military. And so we're bringing in some of the military guys because that's what I know. We're bringing in some experts to talk about things like that. And then we're bringing in interesting people. Like, I, I, I love Naked and Afraid. I watched it all the time. Like, I'll never do that, but I'll watch it. So we're going to have a lot of the people that have been on Naked and Afraid on us talk about the adversity and struggle and things like that. And, and I, what you'll find is that no matter what life group you are part of, you'll find that those struggles are pretty much all the same and that judgment that we have towards each other is misplaced and that we're all struggling in the same way. Whether you have the million dollars and you have the extra stress of things and people will go, well, you have a million dollars and I have nothing. Well, if you have nothing, that's probably a lot less stress. But that stress we place on ourselves, that millionaire has the stress of keeping that money or maintaining that money and maintaining that lifestyle just as somebody who doesn't have any money has that, how do I maintain this lifestyle? How do I get this and that? So it's all a struggle. And if we stop that, that judgment, you know, that, that, and just change it to curiosity as to what is your struggle as a millionaire? Maybe I don't know that you have a lot of bills and it's just as much as I have a dollar and I owe 50 cents. I have a million and I owe 500,000. You know, it's, it's half your money. It, it means the same. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed this. Okay. Bye everyone.